The fabulous Colossus astride the harbor of Rhodes, city of sin. A pagan fortress with an evil purpose. Hello everyone and welcome back to Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about the poem The Colossus by Sylvia Plath. The Colossus lends its title to the only collection of poems published before Plath's death in 1963. When it first appeared in 1960, it attracted favourable reviews, Bernard Bagonzi writing in The Guardian that Plath was a poetess with virtuoso qualities and offering her as a good answer to those inquiring spirits who demand if there are any new poets worth reading. Plath was at this point a new and relatively unknown poet in Britain, but by the time the collection was re-released by Faber in 1967, she had acquired posthumous fame and literary recognition. Al Alvarez described the publication as a major literary event, while Seamus Heaney wrote, On every page the poet is serving notice that she has earned her credentials and knows her trade. We'll mention the collection in passing here and there, but mainly today's focus is on the poem itself. The Colossus was written in 1959, during a transitional period in Plath's life. She and her husband, Ted Hughes, were about to move back to England, having spent two and a half years in America. It was also the year that their first child, Frida, was conceived. The poem is narrated by a figure dwarfed by the enormous ruins of a colossus they are trying to repair. This figure, describing itself as an ant in mourning, addresses the colossus, telling it of the 30 futile years they have spent attempting to mend and decipher it. Today I will go through the poem stanza by stanza, breaking off to discuss the colossus and Plath with my special guest for this episode, Amanda Golden. Amanda is an associate professor of English at the New York Institute of Technology, who last year published Annotating Modernism, a monograph on the marginalia of writers including John Berryman, Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath. Amanda is also currently editing the Bloomsbury Handbook to Sylvia Plath, due out next spring. We'll discuss annotating modernism in greater depth on tomorrow's extended episode. In the meantime, you can find a link in the episode description box below to buy a copy of the book, as well as find out more about Amanda's work. You'll also find a link to my Patreon page where you can support the podcast while accessing bonus content. Now onto the Colossus. Perhaps it was just reading the poem and Amanda's book in tandem, but there seemed to me a correspondence between the narrator's toil and the act of writing marginalia. When Amanda describes Plath's personal annotations of Ulysses, a work Plath described as unbelievably semantically big, great, mind-cracking, I couldn't help but be reminded of her ant-like figure in this poem, crawling over the unbelievably big, great and cracked Colossus. The first stanza goes as follows. I shall never get you put together entirely, pieced, glued, and properly jointed. Mule bray, pig grunt, and bawdy cackles proceed from your great lips. It's worse than a barnyard. I like the first line, I shall never get you put together entirely, because I feel it describes a lot of what we do when we research, because you're always limited by the materials that remain and what you create will always be incomplete and material or material based so you won't reach the past you'll reach a material assemblage and in the poem it's an archaeologist curator 
who is trying to restore and preserve and clean and sustain this this statue and it's also sort of about how we how we think about memory and and the past and the whole part about the not being able to hear the voices and them always coming back garbled is is sort of that paradox of of not being able to speak there there is a bit of an autobiographical element to this poem given that Plath in some ways, it's an impersonal poem about a figure and a father. And in other ways, the the poem Man in, Man in Black uh, in the same book also mentions the Deer Island prison. And that was near where Otto Plath was buried. And in her uh, journal, or in her journal, she describes going there. And the poem Electra on the Azalea Path came out of that visit. Um, but the piggeries are nearby. And so the um, the sound coming, it's sort of inspired by this, or it connects to this moment of trying to, like trying to almost, you know, transcend the boundary, trying to reach the past, and then mm. all the the surrounding noise too that is occluding or surrounding the experience. Um, I love this poem too because it mixes so many things. Um, Marsha Bryant, who's a scholar who works on popular culture in Plath, talks a bit about the Lysol. Um, but it's like you have the, the high, the Orisaya and Lysol. So I'm <laughs> more or less, yeah. I would say, it's like a very, it's a very, you know, mid-century poem in some ways. And then in other ways, it's of immense magnitude, which is one reason why I think it's a great title for a book. Because it's like, this is something big, but it's also something unreachable because the Colossus of Rhodes uh, no longer exists. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, it's, it's something that uh, puts her work in a long history, uh, a different history and related history to Ariel too. I mean, Ariel puts it in, in the tradition of Shakespeare and Keats and Eliot some degree at least aerial poems and the wasteland which picks up Ariel a bit but they're two different side-by-side you know poetic and literary historical legacies that her books sort of um, reach back to but but it's almost accidental too because she could have gone with other titles she had other titles for this book Uh, at Smith there's various typescripts that uh, survived that from her time at Smith to when she went to Cambridge, to when she started sending out her books for um, contests like the Yale series of Younger Poets, she would reassemble her manuscript over the years. And certain poems stay in that were from her Cambridge years, like Spinster, and others drop out. But you can see them in the typescripts as she um, added page numbers. And and then these typescripts only survived sometimes because they become on the backs of other things. So she would reuse all the papers and some of them are at Emory too, because they were at the backs of Ted Hughes' things. So you can see some of these configurations of her books as she progresses from being an undergraduate, though those poems don't stay in the closets, to being a graduate student, to um, writing between 1957 and 1959, this book. And some of the poems, like classes, she composed somewhat um, recently relative to when the book was published, but then some of them go far back. And then at the same time, 
um, when you read them all together, like anything else, you're going to see different um, threads. So that's nice. In the second stanza, the narrator continues, Perhaps you consider yourself an oracle, mouthpiece of the dead, or of some god or other. Thirty years now I have laboured to dredge the silt from your throat. I am none the wiser. We heard in the first stanza that the Colossus was incoherent. Barnyard grunts, brays and cackles are all that issue from its lips. Of some god or other indicates that this incoherence might be down to the antiquity of the Colossus, as we wouldn't expect the relic of a vanished empire who worshipped unknown gods to make any sense to us. But the poem begins on a note of self-reproach. The narrator says that they can't or won't piece or glue it together properly. Now the incoherent howls take on a different tone. They are not lost in translation, but rather bungled in recreation. The question of to what extent the narrator is at fault for the Colossus's unreadability will continue throughout this poem. Are they doing the best they can with rescuing ruins, or are they themselves distorting and complicating its memory? Both possibilities are playfully alive in the lines, 30 years now I have laboured to dredge the silt from your throat. I am none the wiser. Is that none the wiser because dredging has taught me nothing, or none the wiser because you, the Colossus, have still not begun to make sense? For now, there is no mention of fathers. The Colossus is only likened to an oracle, a mouthpiece of the dead. So far, it sounds like a literal Colossus. We might even imagine the brays and cackles to be caused by wind passing the ruins of its lips. Later, the narrator says of the scale of this destruction that it would take more than a burst of lightning. The Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the world, toppled from the knees during an earthquake in the 3rd century BC. Its ruins remained there for 800 years, during which time the Roman author Pliny visited and reported that few men can clasp the thumb in their arms, and its fingers are larger than most statues. Where the limbs are broken asunder, vast caverns are seen, yawning in the interior. Even Pliny's use of the word yawning gives the impression of this relic being in some sense a living memorial, just as the narrator's first line of the second stanza, perhaps you consider yourself an oracle, gives the Colossus a degree of consciousness it can at least consider. It's interesting that you say she was coming to the end of this collection of poems when she wrote this because it sounds so much like reaching the end of a huge work and having all of these different poems and trying some you know pulling them together and the the kind of enormity of feeling that goes with that and being unable to to you know what's the right word sort of maintain it I guess I hadn't thought about that before um I don't know when exactly she composed it in her time in 1959 but um, there are a couple other poems in the book, too, that were somewhat recent um, that because she had been at Yaddo, the artist colony, sort of hunkered away working. Um, and so that added a certain, um, especially uh, some of the subjects like the Manor Garden, that, that was from Yaddo. And so some of the, her time there altered the scope of the, or the emphases of the book. In her journals, you can see a bit more of her recording some of that. So so how much time are we are we talking about in terms of composing the the collection? Where where was she? Some of the poems date back to her time in Cambridge uh, in 1956, mm. poems like Spinster. And the British version is a little different from the American version. Um, the British version was published by Heinemann in 1960 and the American by Knopf in 1962. 
And for I don't know why, but Black Frickin' Rainy Weather is not in the American version. And then there is a fun story with another change that was made that's more well-known. And that's that she has a long poem called Poem for a Birthday that ends the collection. Yeah, in the British one, it's called Poem for a Birthday. And in the American one, it's called The Stones. And it's a, a long poem. And what happened was when she got to Knopf, they said, this is too much like Theodore Reski. The reviewers are going to, you know, in this story, you can read it in the new letters. The reviewers are going to, you know, take you to task for this. And so mm. she cut some of the sections. But when she told Reski this, Reski had taught at the University of Washington where I did my PhD. So I actually went and read these letters. It's really nice uh, there. Uh, he, she told Reski this story and he's like, I like those best. The ones that she had to cut, <laughs> which is incredibly generous of him. Um, generous, it must have been gutting as well. The ones that, yeah, the ones she, she had, had to, to cut. cut some of the sections, and there are other small changes between the books. Um, some of the spellings are ma- are made American in the American edition. But mm. I was thinking about it, the both editions as a book that Plath put her stamp on uh, and approved because we have later poems of Plath that she published, but we don't have that kind of closure with the volume that you have with this. Uh, But she did publish a lot of these poems, I think most of them along the way. And some were coming out like right alongside or right before the book. The Colossus poem itself was published in 1962 in Encounter in April. And the American version was published in 1962, I'm not sure what month, and the British version had been published in 1960. Uh, so there was um, various periodical publications of all these poems. So it's interesting to me to sort of try and reconcile and see where little changes crept in in her work. The third stanza emphasises the magnitude of the Colossus, while contrasting the earlier talk of oracles and gods with references to cleaning products. Scaling little ladders with glue pots and pails of Lysol, I crawl like an ant in mourning over the weedy acres of your brow to mend the immense skull plates and clear the bald white tumuli of your eyes. Here Plath emphasises the futility of her narrator's mission. Little ladders and glue pots to repair tectonic-sounding skull plates. Antiquity and domestic modernity meet in those pails of Lysol, furthering the impression that the narrator hasn't quite got the right tools for the job. With an ant in mourning, we get the first clear indication of the narrator's relationship to the Colossus, and the last three lines have an ingenious way of sounding simultaneously epic and pedestrian. Weedy acres, just like an overgrown farm, but these are the weedy acres that span a giant's brow. Mend the immense skull plates carries the ring of cataclysm, but also that of the household disaster of broken plates. And the bald white tumuli of your eyes, that sounds like the milky eyes of anyone blind or extremely old. But that standout word tumuli, meaning burial mounds, transforms a blank expression to something epic. Plenty to dig up in that last line. The narrator clearing the burial mounds of eyes as you might clear dead flowers from a grave. This once again amplifies the Colossus, a monument so gigantic you can fit two more memorials in his eyes. So was there was there a, a certain degree of anticipation by the time the collection came out? Was she gathering a fair bit of attention with the, the poems that had been published? I know there's a story with Alvarez when she met him. He tells a story and he was like, I liked your poem, the one about the factory, and it was night shift. 
Oh. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't, I don't know as much about it, although the new letters certainly help uh, to fill in more of the story. But she spent, I mean, between 1956 and 1959, she was writing many poems that don't make it into the book that she was sending out. So, so was she, does, does it span from her being a student and a, and a teacher? Yeah, when she was a teacher, she sort of took a, she had different moments of productivity that year. She was so busy teaching that there wasn't space for everything. And when you look at her teaching notes, they're so copious and so thorough that um, you can see why she was so exhausted. But then over spring break, she did have a sort of burst of productivity when um, she wrote a series of poems based on works of art, all inspired by Paul Clay, de Kirico. There had been a contest from the magazine Art News to write an art poem. So Plath went after it with a vengeance and <laughs> she, <laughs> she was auditing a class at Smith and she had studied uh, art and has interested in art and she liked de Kirko for some time uh, before that and so she brought home all these books from the art library and got to work and she wrote poems like Virgin in a Tree and um, a poem called Perseus that's inspired by Paul Clay and several others that sort of all present this moment um, they're they're part of crisis in that when you look at the painting or drawing you see something different than what I mean, it makes different sense to you. There's one line fisted to a fetus head. And then when you actually see it, you understand what she meant. <laughs> but it really does, it really does do more to see the original. But but her art poems in that spring stretch were really her first uh, productive burst during that time period. Then she went on by the summer of that year to receive acceptances um, from the New Yorker, a muscle hunter at Rock Harbor and, and others. Oh, but it was sort of stressful. It was very stressful for her not to have space for her creative work, to be spending as much time on sort of revisiting her student interests and updating them. And I think that has a lasting impact on her as a reader. But to some extent, she wanted to be producing poetry, too. She had stopped teaching in 1958, and the classes came out in 1960. Uh, Hughes taught as well, and that was one of the more fun parts of this project um, because Hughes is teaching uh, because he wanted to focus more on his creative work as well, has been less attended to. And when I arrived at Emory, I was a fellow there, and I um, looked for the books that Plath had taught with and Hughes had taught with, and I found a copy of Crime and Punishment that... I think it might have been cataloged as Plath having annotated it, but they both annotated it straight through because Plath had uh, taught the book and she wrote in her journal that she had passed on her teaching materials, particularly her teaching notes to, to Hughes. And at, in her teaching notes, which are in Indiana, there's a page where he added some notes too. But the book is, I thought, even more interesting because she's very thorough with regard to all of the preparation you want to do as a student and to prepare students. And then he adds to that, but he also is more, uses the book almost as a notebook to prepare for teaching and he'll sort of flag things. And he used the tops of the pages more to sort of be somewhere he could look to pretty, fairly quickly when you're with a class. And I thought that was such an interesting document of their parallel 
teaching preparation of, of crime and punishment, which is not, it's not a book that they're associated with as much because Laplace studied Russian literature, but when people think about influence, they tend to look, you know, poet to poet, but actually mm. um, there's, they were immersed in, in a larger literary history too. Here's the fourth stanza of the poem, running into the first part of the fifth. A blue sky out of the Oresteia arches above us. O father, all by yourself, you are pithy and historical as the Roman Forum. I open my lunch on a hill of black cypress. Your fluted bones and acanthine hair are littered in their old anarchy to the horizon line. It would take more than a lightning stroke to create such a ruin. This section returns us to classicism, with reference to the Oresteia, the Roman Forum, and plants associated with ancient Greece and Rome, Cyprus and Acanthus. The leaves of the latter are commonly recreated in Greco-Roman architecture. You've probably seen them frilling the tops of columns. Edinburgh really went in for that sort of thing in the 18th and 19th century. We have the explicit reference to father in conjunction with the Oresteia, the story of Agamemnon's children avenging his death deepening the sense of intimacy between narrator and Colossus. His bones and hair littered in their old anarchy, that carries a, a touching double resonance. On the one hand, littered like ruins of a shattered statue, but also like the messy, anarchic hair someone might have had in life. In this stanza, we feel a real shock of grief, some unfathomable loss that would take more than a lightning stroke to create. And in a flash, we can see the narrator not as mere custodian of a found relic, but its creator, struggling with the impossible task of keeping their father's memory alive. I'm going to keep saying they and there because I don't read the poems being only about Plath and the memory of her father, but containing that meaning alongside others. Certainly the impossibility of having the dead speak to us as we would want them to, and of the incongruous scraps a person leaves behind, are there to see and hear in the poem. So is the anxiety about how grief and memory operate, as more time passes, your memory of someone might resemble them less and less, and only degrade the more effort you put in, the more glue pots you pour. But I think that form of construction is being compared here to the creation of Plath's work. Here she was, nearing the end of a long collection of poems, the writing of which spanned several years, during which her life had transformed dramatically. Any writer would sympathise with the image of a nearly completed work, resembling the scattered ruins of a divine idea. Plath described some of her struggles in a journal entry that mentions how she began the Colossus. Most of my trouble is a recession of my old audacity, unself-conscious brazenness. A self-hypnotic state of boldness and vigour annihilates my lugubrious oozings of top-of-the-head matter. I try Ted's exercise, deep-breathing concentration on stream-of-conscious objects these last days, and wrote two poems that pleased me. One, a poem to Nicholas, and one, the old father-worship subject but different, weirder. I see a picture, a weather in these poems. I think you can hear Plath's self-criticism transforming into the ironic self-praise of her narrator in The Colossus. When they say it would take more than a lightning stroke to create such a ruin, what they could be meaning is it takes many more strokes of a different kind, strokes of a pen or a typewriter. And while that might ultimately destroy the ideal image of a work as it was conceived before they began, the ruins are themselves a creation. Compare this to Ted Hughes's famous poem of poetic creation, The Thought Fox, where the narrator sees an apparition in a midnight moment's forest, and after it disappears, the page is printed. The poem is written, and it has told the story of itself. 
In Plath's poem, creation is marked with a much more sarcastic note of self-congratulation. It is a ruin that has been created, but it took more than lightning to pull it off. Um, there are uh, sort of moments throughout the collection and in the title poem as well that, that are very reminiscent of certain Hughes collections. Um, the, the sort of confusion of barnyard noises from the Colossus and um, the poem Sow. I can't help thinking of uh, View of a Dead Pig. And, and, and that kind of, that kind of uh, yeah. work. There's a there's a quote towards the end of your book where he he describes that there were times when he and Plath were sort of two halves of the same mind. Was was the was the Colossus composed in a in a time when that was true, or was that sort of influenced from a different? Yeah, there's time? been some some work on that. Um, Heather Clark has a good book about Plath and Hughes, and as does Middlebrook and. Um, and there's a very early book, right, Margaret Yuroff, that pairs all those poems, like Sow and View of a Pig. Oh, really? I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it matches up all these interesting connections. And and then Heather Clark uh, worked further to think about, you know, how they were working alongside. And she even looks at later work by Hughes and Plath's lasting influence on it, things like Crow. So I thought mm. uh, I had not done that thinking yet. And I thought that was great. Um, and I didn't think any, you know, anyone else really had done that long view. It is that time period, uh, and they are reading a lot together, and people have looked at that as well, especially poems like Sow. I, I mean, she probably wouldn't have taken such um, a sort of farm-like turn without Hughes. Um, he, he, was <laughs> he was more, but where they were living in Northampton, um, she makes one comment, like, in her in her letters that, if they stayed, they want to live maybe on a farm in Hadley. Part of that area still is filled with farms. Um, so mm -hmm. it's not, when they moved to Boston, they were making a, a very different change in their environment. Um, Northampton is a, is a town, but there are farm areas surrounding it. So there was more of that there in, in her teaching stretch um, that they moved away from. And then they took that long trip all over the West. So they got to go, get back to nature a bit. And such, yeah, I was looking at Sal recently and it's interesting because at Smith, there's a dictionary that she underlined as she wrote and uh, through from 1950 onward. And it's incredibly interesting to watch because she would underline definitions of very specific things and then they would play into the poems with some uh, specificity. Oh. It wasn't just like she was looking up synonyms. So the definitions of cells would come, come sort of an anchor for for her sense of, or you can see some of it playing in some of her late poems like Perda and Ariel actually there's there's references from her dictionary at the top uh, so you could see her and you can also see the sort of serendipity sometimes where she's looking for one thing but she might have found another just because they were in the dictionary so she so in Sal there's actually a couple words that she notes uh, that are very specific and so when I was working on some of these poems I would I would look for very specific things and, and wonder where they came from but there's there's some very specific things that I don't think Hughes would I don't know as much of it but he doesn't really have that same impulse as she does to be as research-based he would read mm -hmm. widely uh, his degree was in anthropology and he would bring back things for her too that they read and people have written about that as well but she was more of a, a, a researcher at times in, in her way. 
Into the final section of the poem now, here is the last part of stanza five, running into the final stanza. Nights I squat in the cornucopia of your left ear, out of the wind, counting the red stars and those of plum colour. The sun rises under the pillar of your tongue. My hours are married to shadow. No longer do I listen for the scrape of a keel on the blank stones of the landing. In this section, the narrator shuts themselves away, realising the futility of their project, but either determined or bound to continue regardless. It has been a lonely endeavour, and it will stay that way. The mention of a scrape of a keel returns us to the Colossus at Rhodes, who was said to stand athwart the harbour. The cornucopia of your left ear is another line that could be read in either a classical or prosaic spirit, the cornucopia being the mythological symbol of abundance, the horn of plenty, usually stuffed to the brim with a variety of nourishing fruits and vegetables. But it also sounds almost comically decrepit, putting us in mind of a bunged-up ear or a hearing trumpet. By choosing to squat there, out of the wind, the narrator is choosing to deafen themselves by hiding in the instrument used for hearing, and likewise they are kept in the dark by the pillar of a tongue. And so their hours are married to shadow, and this labour will not be recognised. Stephen Gould Axelrod suggested that the Colossus of Platt's poem stands as a monumental image of patriarchal poetry. Certainly in the contemporary reviews of her collection, she is frequently judged by the measure of other poetesses, and even in praise from friends and supporters like Al Alvarez, we can find a patriarchal ring. Alvarez wrote that in the Colossus, Plath had steered clear of feminine charm, deliciousness, gentility, supersensitivity, and the act of being a poetess. She simply writes good poetry. And what, what do we know about the uh, sort of her ordering of the collection and, uh, say, ma- making the Colossus the title poem? I know that for some time the title was The Bull of Bendy Law, which was based on her experience in Spain. She had a few poems that she wrote about her trip to Spain with Hughes. And then he wrote a poem called You Hated Spain, <laughs> famously later. <laughs> but, but it did yield several poems. I mean, there was Alicante Lullaby. I don't know a lot of the backstory of a lot of things, but... Um, Spain did yield some poems and fiction and and prose. And she published something as well about um, this woman that they met there. So the Bull of Bendila was about a a bullfight there. Um, So that was a title for a while. And I wonder when it occurred to her. I, I don't exactly know. I would think at some point when she had finished the poem, maybe she thought this, this is, this sets a tone. Yeah, it's, it does set quite, I mean, it's quite a declaration uh, for, for a, for a uh, work of poetry. Um, is there anything to the, uh, something I've seen in a couple of places that the title might have something to do with Colossus with a K, this um, character associated with Ouija and, and Hughes and Plath? I don't, I don't know the circumstances around that. That sounds fascinating. There is a piece at the back of the collected poems where um, Hughes included some of their Ouija. Uh, it's called Dialogue Over a Ouija Board. I don't know enough about that, but that's really interesting. No, I need, I need, I need to look more. In, I just, I'd seen a couple of just sort of teasing references to it, and it's uh, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't got the full story. There is, there is something about the uh, another thing about the poem that reminded me a lot of your book I say reminded I was reading them simultaneously so it wasn't exactly <laughs> casting my mind back to your book <laughs> but um the the narrator being sort of uh subjugated to this colossus or subjugating 
herself or itself to this uh, colossus, something that kind of looms so large, and yet if it is alive, it's kind of indecipherably alive. It does seem to resonate with the 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 muse that you you identify of Plath's this this theme of death in life and and life in death. The narrator seems to be sort of you know castigating herself as something that will merely tend uh, a somewhat dead thing as opposed to live for herself. It's interesting because she does produce the poem though, so it's sort of paradoxical. In some ways, her academic work is a subject like that. There's always this story that she, you know, sort of had to move away from her sort of student identity to move on. But in some ways she's sort of always a student. The death and life, life and death part was one of my favorite parts of this book. And it was a preoccupation for over a decade. Uh, because, really? uh, <laughs> because when you're working with marginalia and you see things more than once, in different settings, you it becomes an interest in terms of where did this come from? What did it mean to the reader? What does it mean in terms of this passage? It's connected to how might the what might this passage have meant at this point in time based on how people are reading it? So when I was a graduate student reading a lot of these things for the first time, I became really interested in ways that they were being read at in Plath's time too. And um, things like death and life, when Plath wrote in her teaching notes that that was so central to not just Joyce and Eliot, but also just her poetry and life. I, mm. I thought that was a big statement. It, it did come out of the critics she had read, but it also was sort of seeing writing as pushing the limits of what it was possible to depict. Mm. the limits of life in a way the term living death and death in life have different meanings and they had meanings at the time and they're and one thing i like about martialia is they sort of preserve words that in context or alongside context that often you know fade out of view there are Mm. other cases where plus um notes particular references and and i would sort of try and understand that in, in terms of what people were saying at the time there there's been more work on teaching materials since um there's a new book by rachel burma and laura heffernan called the teaching archive and it looks at all kinds of teaching materials and their relationship to literary history and also the history of the canon and and teaching and class materials yeah it's really good and (laughs) class materials in a way um, both her marginal and her teaching materials to me were providing something of an introduction to some of the ways that things were circulating at the time and I was interested in in what in the relation to the larger picture though I didn't have I didn't have that big of a corpus they have a very big corpus and it's great but sometimes people would say to me things like oh that was just a new criticism but I didn't know what they meant by that I mean I Mm. I know that it existed. When I would work with class materials, I would be very interested in the specifics of them and other writers mm. that I worked with, like Barryman, because I didn't know how much she would have known about the bigger picture, which is often constructed in retrospect. Uh, and I was very curious about uh, her other teacher, Elizabeth Drew, or I haven't talked about her yet, but um, her teacher, Elizabeth Drew, left materials in the Smith archives. And so when I was a master's student, I went and read them 
I didn't know they were there. I was sort of just looking for a syllabus. And what I found were all these notebooks in longhand. And you can't know what she said at the time or when she said it, because people do different things at different times. But there are places in class books that match things that Elizabeth Drew introduced, um, sometimes with, in very specific ways. So I was incredibly interested in reading Drew's longhand, partly because I had never studied some of the books that she was talking about. And to me, it was like getting to audit a class. And so I loved <laughs> those resources and I would study them and read them. And it's wonderful that she did that. And, and one thing that Burma and Hefferton point out is that it's pretty rare to have teaching materials preserved. Other people do it. I've recently been working on Gwendolyn Brooks and she preserved a lot of things. Uh, at Illinois, her library opened not too long ago, a couple of years, maybe five years ago. And yeah. um, some of her teaching materials and her annotated books are there and they go together. And so I've been working on that as well. And one thing too, was that she relied very heavily on Elizabeth Drew as well, um, on a book that she wrote um, about poetry. And in many of her classes, she would revisit Elizabeth Drew's explanation of versification, which is like, mm. it's not Elizabeth Drew specific, but, um, but it was fun to see that connection from, because Brooks had established herself as a poet already by the time she starts teaching and she's almost trying to get up to speed on what people are teaching and then mm. she picks up Drew which is for Plath it was the reverse Plath established herself as a poet to some degree long after she was immersed in Drew's poetic explanations mm. uh, but but for Plath really it was with Eliot that Elizabeth Drew had a whole book on Eliot. It was one of the first critical texts then. She actually corresponded with Eliot a little too. There are two letters oh, really? to Eliot. Yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just the just two letters at Smith. It was interesting to see that because it was so new. Um, a lot mm. of the critical approaches at the time were explaining these poems like the Wasteland because people were learning how to read them. And so when Plath admires these poets partly she's doing so via how she's been taught to read them so creative work in the sense of sometimes people are just admiring language almost outside of uh, outside of the sense it makes but in, in a way they were intertwined with class because of the particular moment that she was learning to read modernism and I became really interested in that just because I was thinking about modernism in general and that's about all we have time for for today. A huge thank you to my guest, Amanda Golden. And don't forget to tune back in tomorrow where I'll be talking to Amanda again and in greater depth about her book, Annotating Modernism. If you want to get yourself a copy of the book, check out the episode description box below where you'll also find a link to our Patreon page. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>